Hello everyone and welcome to our sixth episode of Autism with a Pinch of Salt. Um, Happy New Year to everyone as well. This is our first episode of 2022. Um, And yeah, I hope everybody's had a lovely Christmas and New Year and a nice break. In today's episode, I'm joined with Emily Kircher Morris from the Neurodiversity Podcast. The Neurodiversity Podcast is my favourite podcast to listen to, so I'm really excited to have her on today. We have a discussion about giftedness and twice exceptionality, which I feel is something that's maybe not spoken about as much. So I was really excited to get into this conversation. I hope you enjoy. So again, thanks very much, Emily, for coming on today. I'm really excited to speak to you. Oh, um, before you we before we start, can would you mind just telling us a, a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I am a clinical mental health counselor. I specialize in working with kids and families and adults um, who are neurodivergent, and that can mean a lot of different things, but. Basically, my my background, I started as a teacher, and I taught in gifted education programming, um, and then I was a school counselor. Um, And then as I moved into clinical mental health, um, I I kind of expanded that expertise in working with with giftedness um, and learned a lot about how neurodiversity kind of layers on top of giftedness for kids who are what's called twice exceptional, which means gifted and having another diagnosis like ADHD or or autism. So that's professionally what I do. I am a, a parent. I have three kids. And, you know, throughout all of this, my, my husband and I started the Neurodiversity Podcast. So those are kind of all of the little, little pieces. Yeah, brilliant. So today's episode, I'm hoping to speak about, about giftedness and twice exceptionality. So to kind of kick us off, would you mind um, explaining what giftedness is? Sure. So when we talk about cognitive giftedness, really what we are discussing um, is, you know, a different way of processing, a different way of problem solving. Individuals who exhibit cognitive giftedness, which is often measured through an IQ score, and whether you agree with the testing of IQ or not, the, the reality is that the psychological research really shows that it is one of the most consistent indicators of life outcomes. And that's not to say that it's infallible, that, that you know there aren't definitely concerns about how those scores are measured within certain populations. But the bottom line is it, it's, a, it's a pretty good measure of how somebody learns and processes information. So somebody who is cognitively gifted often learns very rapidly. Um, They need very few repetitions to integrate new material into their knowledge. They are able to um, take that information and synthesize it and evaluate it in ways that is often beyond their years. So in the educational setting, these are kids who might be able to do work that is well above what what age level they are they you know you might have a seven-year-old who can do math at the level of somebody who's you know 14 or 15 or even an adult um, or or language-based abilities um, can also be you know way way above where you have somebody who's you know three or four years old and they're reading chapter books so it really it really impacts a lot of educational and career 
opportunities and outcomes. And it also influences social and emotional development simply because it influences how you process the world, how you process relationships. And um, so there's some additional supports that are often needed to help help kids, you know, um, navigate the world in their life. Would you say the gifted learners have to be gifted in all areas of learning or could you be gifted cognitively gifted just in one area like numeracy or literacy yeah no definitely I mean so so there is the concept of a global intelligence which in in psychological research is indicated by the concept of G which is usually written as a lowercase italicized letter G Um, and and so in general, usually if you see somebody who has an area of giftedness in one particular area, usually the other areas will also be above average. However, with that being said, there are definitely peaks and valleys. Um, so so that means like you, you might have somebody just who is extremely, extremely gifted in, in language-based learning. And, you know, they can write poetry and stories and all of these pieces. Often that person, if they have that strength in that area, that's very, very strong. A lot of them aren't going to like doing math <laughs> or other types of tasks quite as much. So they might feel that it is weak, but but it would be rare to see them at a level that is much lower. Like it's still probably going to be above average in some way. But again, still definitely those those peaks and valleys. If you did see, for example, a child who was extremely gifted in, say, math, but then their reading was either at grade level or age level or even a little bit below, we would consider that a specific learning disability. You know, it might be dyslexia or something like that, which can also coexist with giftedness, which many people don't even realize or understand. So, you know, I, I think the thing to to kind of take away from that is, obviously, just like any individual, Everyone has their own individual strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, just because somebody has that label of giftedness doesn't really tell you a whole lot. You have to really look at the individual to see where that manifests for them and how how that influences the outcomes that they have at at school or whatever the situation might be. And I guess if somebody who that was gifted had maybe a particular interest like you were seeing in, in like poetry or something that would come across to other people like that's a real strength for them because they might spend a lot more time doing these things because that's what they enjoy but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not as good at the other areas they just enjoy one area more yeah absolutely and also if you think about it I mean you know there's always this push and pull sometimes between like there are some people who are advocates of growth mindset who will say basically that intelligence doesn't really matter. If you have a growth mindset and you work at something and you really want to do it, you know, you can you can reach whatever. I, I like to kind of sometimes think about giftedness as um, like a, I don't know, like as a, as a ladder, for example, right? And so, so I don't know. I I almost don't even like using the term of a ladder because it kind of indicates a value-based statement, but just roll with me on, yep. on it because there's no value other than it just is what it is. But, you know, somebody is born with some sort of genetic determination of something, you know, of, of what their range of cognitive ability will be. And then, of course, environment plays a role in that. 
um, and experiences play a role in that. And so, so you have kind of this range of potential, right? And so if somebody is, is not um, in a stimulating environment or if they are ex- experienced trauma or um, all kinds of different things, you know, that, that's probably going to skew lower. Um, if they are put in a really enriching environment and given lots of opportunities, it's going to skew higher and that kind of influences. But everybody kind of has a range. And, and there is definitely, I think, boundaries there um, for each individual person. But a lot of things influence that. One of the other influences is what is your area of interest. So if I'm super interested in poetry or if I'm super interested in coding and robotics and I spend a ton of time doing those things, well, that's definitely going to move me up on that scale to be more successful. So it's also interesting to think like we have to kind of separate giftedness. When we're thinking about giftedness, we're really thinking about ability, potential. What is that range? But then we also have achievement or skill. So depending on the amount of practice that I put into something, that's going to change my level of skill, which is influenced by my potential. But they're kind of two different constructs. Um, One is very abstract and and, um, the other is just very concrete as far as what we can literally see as as a result of the first. That's a really great explanation. Thank you. So you'd mentioned earlier on about IQ tests being used to measure giftedness. Is there any other tests that can be used or is it just IQ tests that are considered like gold standard? IQ tests are definitely the go-to. And I think that IQ tests get a bad rap, especially because we should believe that everybody has the ability to do whatever they want. And in some degrees that's true and i think that the concern about iq tests is though is that like you're you're then like somehow <laughs> limiting somebody's options if they do or don't get a certain score on an iq test and i i think that's a valid criticism but i also think that you know the iq test is is simply a way of of measuring something that's already there like we've we've measured it enough that we know that it's a it's a real construct um but what's interesting though is that as I was just mentioning, where you have like the the abstract, the ability, and then you have the achievement. So you can do an achievement test. So where you actually measure somebody's um, actual achievement in reading or math. Um, I don't know what you guys have in the UK. If you we have the SAT and the ACT tests here in the states. Do you have something similar? Yeah. So I think I think down south they do GCSEs up here. It's um, like hires and mm-hmm. the 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 down south's version of a higher is um, an A level, I think. Yeah. So, so basically, what we know though is that you can actually use those achievement tests as a proxy for IQ. So they're they're highly highly correlated. And again, that's influenced by experiences and environment and all of those things. But in general, somebody who has a high IQ is also going to have high achievement in those areas. So. While, yes, if you want a number, if you want a specific number, an IQ score, the best way to do that is through an IQ test. But you can use an achievement test and really kind of gain a lot of the same information. And, and sometimes I do feel like sometimes that might even be more practical. It kind of depends on what the, what the intent is of the assessment. Yep, that makes sense. And actually, that kind of correlates a little bit with something that my friends had said when I was asking about giftedness in the UK or, or specifically Scotland 
and how it's recognised. And he had said that the information that I'd got, I was kind of talking by proxies, girlfriends who were sort of sending messages through that way. I think that it's the teachers over here that rec- that kind of pick it up through, like you're seeing the achievement tests, rather than it going through an ed- educational psychi- uh, psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure the educational psychologist over here could, you know, carry out like an IQ test, but I think more so it's probably done through the school and the mm-hmm. teachers themselves rather than it being an ed site. Yeah, I think when you're looking for children to support um, because they are gifted, one thing that we have to be really cautious about is how do we identify those kids? So it's one thing if you're using an achievement test like we were just mentioning and we're we're giving the, every student in the you know a level they're all taking this achievement test um and you can kind of see where kids fall and then you can drive their instruction you know based on that so if you have kids who are really strong in this area then you give them enrichment if you have kids who need support in this area then you give them that support one thing that has been uh, an evolution in gifted education is that we are really trying to get away from asking teachers to identify giftedness because, and, and what I mean is, it's one thing if you're looking at the data, right? Then the data is identifying the giftedness. But if you are looking at teacher perceptions, teachers tend to identify students who are compliant, highly verbal, organized, have good executive function skills. Those are the observable traits that teachers associate with giftedness. However, <laughs> As we know, that is not necessarily the same as having ability. You might have a child who is kind of all over the place and has, <laughs> um, you know, just a total disorganization, but has brilliant ideas and abilities. And you'll often catch that on an achievement test, but you might not catch it through just a teacher's observations. So we want to make sure that we're not missing kids in that way. Yeah, that makes sense. And the classroom should gifted children be supported differently to their peers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think, again, it's kind of this interesting educational philosophical conversation about how we support those kids. On the one hand, the kids who are gifted, because they learn more rapidly, because of the way that they integrate information, if you leave them in a classroom where they are unchallenged, where they already have mastered most of the curriculum, there can be a lot of negative outcomes to that. So for example, one of the things that I feel like is, an, and I observe is a outcome of a child who is unchallenged is it actually increases the risk of perfectionism. Because if they're in a classroom where they're unchallenged and they always get perfect scores on everything that they do, Well, then they learn that that's the expectation for themselves. They expect it from themselves and they feel like others expect it from them. And so they don't learn how to struggle. They don't learn how to learn. And so as they get older, eventually they will come to a point where they have to, you know, struggle through something and they they won't have that perseverance. They won't have that ability to do so. So that's one reason. The other reason is that we need to support gifted kids in the classroom is because one of, my, one of my favorite statements um, is every child who puts a year into school deserves to get a year out of it. Meaning if they spend a year learning, at the end of that year, they should show a year's worth of learning. 
And so if they're in a classroom where they already know the material, what a waste of time, what a waste of resources. And so we really want to make sure that we're supporting them. Now, the other thing I would I was want to kind of mention with that is you have to be really cautious about just identifying a student based on an IQ score. And that, this is kind of, again, where some of that criticism comes into play. Because just because a child is gifted doesn't mean that they are advanced in achievement in certain areas. So you don't want to put, for example, when I was in school and I was in a gifted ed program, by the time we got to high school, the way that they m provided gifted education services for us was through um, a language arts class, which was specifically related to, you know, and all, all the gifted kids were placed in this one gifted language arts class. Well, not all of us were gifted in language arts. <laughs> so it was kind of like a, a, a weird way for them to just kind of lump us all together. But that wasn't necessarily what was best for all of those students. So we want to make sure that we are driving the instruction based on both their ability and their achievement, their specific skills. It gets rather complicated when you really start to think about it because there's no quick, easy, one-size-fits-all solution. Yeah. And in the UK, what I found out is over here, what we do if a child's been identified as being gifted, an IEP is made, so an individual education plan. And that's made sort of specific to that to that child and then the teacher works from that and that's integrated into their, their education rather than, you know, kind of taking that child out the classroom and placing them somewhere else, you know, with maybe in a group of their, their peers, their gifted mm -hmm. peers. Can you see advantages and disadvantages from that? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, well, I wish that every gifted child in the United States received an IEP. We, we provide IEPs for students for special education services, meaning that they have areas of difficulty that they're, you know, usually a, an identified disability or, um, you know, some, some sort of, of need that they have. Gifted ed services are kind of all over the place. One of the benefits of having an opportunity to cluster gifted kids into either a classroom where they are, you know, just like a self-contained classroom, even if it's just for a part of the day or part of the week or something like that, is they have the opportunity to learn with like-minded peers. And that's a really valuable experience for them. That's often seen as elitist. Another way to, to kind of support those kids is you can cluster a group of gifted kids in the same classroom. So if you have a grade level that has, I don't know, four or five classrooms of the same age or whatever, if you took all of those higher ability kids and kind of put them in one classroom, that makes it easier for that teacher to then differentiate the instruction for them. So they can then have that, you know, um, that ability, but like as, a, as just a little bubble within that wider classroom. It's very difficult for teachers in a classroom of 15, 20, 25 kids, however many they have, to meet the kids at whatever level they are because there's so many different levels. And so that's really the, the main difficulty with saying, oh, well, yes, you have these, you're, you have high ability, we want to challenge you, we want to provide you with this. And then you're in this classroom with all these other kids who have different needs. Well, the teacher is naturally going to gravitate towards providing supports for the kids who are struggling. And rightfully so. I mean, I, I understand that. But that doesn't mean, you know, so then what happens to that kid? Well, then we get back to the place where they're not learning or they're unchallenged. Yeah. And so that's not really fair for them either. As it's really complicated, isn't it, trying to find that happy medium? And it I is. wonder as, as well, in the classroom, 
if a child, for example, is doing maths work three, four, five years above their peers, and their peers notice that as well, mm-hmm. is there going to be is there going to be issues with peer relationships because they're noticing? I think sometimes for children, it doesn't matter what kind of a difference it is. If it's a difference, you know, issues can arise until they become a bit more mature. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah. kids learn to hide their abilities because they don't want to be different. Yeah. And that's yeah. another piece of it. And again, it, that really depends on the personality. There are some, some kids who just really just don't even care or notice. And they're like, well, this is what I love to do. I'm going to do it. You know, but there are other kids who are very sensitive to that and very aware if they're perceived as different. And the research that I've read really shows that that um, younger gifted kids actually are quite popular. Um, kids like to be friends with the smart kid in school when they're young. It's as they get older to like those preteen and teenage years where that the social stigma surrounding that kind of shifts a little bit and it kind of depends like there's like a sweet spot you know like again kids who are kids who are bright and who do well in school and are and you know that's those are still the kids who tend to be well liked and have a lot of a lot of good relationships but if you're too smart (laughs) then then that's becomes more difficult yeah i can i can understand that and see even from when I was in high school, the people who were in the top classes, so you always knew who was in the top class because it was, they were organized by number. So number one being the highest, and then it would go down to the number would get higher, the, the lower the, the level it was. And if you were sitting in the middle, in the sort of middle classes, nothing was ever really said. If you were sitting in the top classes, you were, you know, a teacher's pet or, you know, you were kind of made fun of. If you're in the bottom classes, then you're, again, you were made fun of for not being clever. Mm-hmm. So there's that sort of, again, it's that, it's like one extreme to another. Yeah, and it's weird how, like, logistically, that probably made a lot of sense from an educational standpoint. But you can see why people don't like that idea of separating kids out by ability. And so, you know, because who wants to be labeled as the, you know, as the kid who's, in the in the lower end classes like that's it's it's interesting and and it and it fosters a lot of strange dynamics in relationships for kids yeah so what sort of social emotional difficulties come alongside being gifted yeah well i mentioned perfectionism and research really shows that that perfectionism isn't necessarily more associated innately with giftedness but i do believe that there are quite a few environmental factors that can really influence that and, and I think in general, one of the other social pieces, social and emotional pieces, is that um, gifted kids, for example, they have this knowledge base and this awareness of the world around them. So like, for example, I have, I have a first grader, and so he's six years old, and he's the youngest of my three. But because my other two are, well, 11 and 13 years old, my six-year-old hears a lot of things and is exposed to a lot of ideas that are much older than his age. And what's hard for him is that he has the knowledge to understand those things. He hears things and sees things and understands things. However, he does not have the emotional capacity to un- to put those things into context So, for example, with all of this stuff with the pandemic and all of these things, like he understands those things. Well, I don't know that any of us really has the emotional capacity to (laughs) handle all of it and put it in context. But but for him, it's like 
he just doesn't have the life experience behind him to understand what's happening or how to get through it. He doesn't have the coping skills there. Those are much more age appropriate. And that's common with gifted kids. So one of the concepts that we talk about in gifted education is asynchronous development, meaning that kids develop at different rates. So just because a child is cognitively gifted, that does not mean that their emotional maturity is advanced. It does not mean that their physical capabilities are advanced. Now, those are things that might be true. Like they might have other abilities that are also much more mature or advanced, but not necessarily. And, and, and to be honest, I would say that usually those other skills develop at a rate that is much more commensurate with their peers. So another area would be like working memory and processing speed. Those are two areas that tend to develop related to a child's chronological age as opposed to their cognitive ability. So then what's confusing, though, for educators or parents is that you see this child who is very bright and <laughs> they can talk to you as though they are, you know, an, an, an attorney <laughs> at, at age eight and they can logic their way through all of these things. But then they can't manage to, like, find their homework or remember, you know, remember like a, a four or five steps of instructions of like chores or things to do because they just kind of, you know, yeah. it's not those skills aren't necessarily there in the same way. And so that discrepancy is often difficult. Another piece that kind of influences that socialization and, and social development it, that goes along with this is that because we see those kids and they present often as older than what they are. We expect them to behave that way. So then when they don't behave that way, they're often disciplined differently. Like we just hold them to a different level of expectation. Um, and so that's another way that that is that that is influenced. So, you know, somebody's cognitive ability influences all aspects of their life. And I, I would never say, though, I, I think in general, it's important to recognize that giftedness overall is is a good thing. I think sometimes people like to try to make it out as though it's a, it's a negative. It makes life much harder. And there are aspects that can do that. But really, I think when people do that, it's because they're trying to advocate for services. But realistically, like there, there are more benefits that come along with it. The difficulties in this in the social and emotional problems are more related to environment and misunderstanding than they are innate to giftedness. I feel like with all sort of areas of, of neurodiversity that that's the one thing that kind of comes up with, with everything. It's the environment that has the biggest impact. So I've heard a lot of autistic adults, for example, saying, I'm not disabled by my autism, I'm disabled by my environment. And if we can get the environment right, then everything else kind of follows. You know, mental health overall, general like life outcomes would be better if we can get the environment right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was, I didn't, you know, mention this earlier, but, you know, so I was diagnosed as ADHD as a kid, and I was also in a gifted program, which was kind of weird. And I look back, and I have quite a few um, autistic traits that I recognize. And I know that if I were assessed today, um, like if I were a child today and being assessed, I know that autism would have at least been one of the questions that they were looking at. But because of where I am today and because of the environment that I'm in, like, I don't know, like, that's a question that I don't know that I'll ever really be able to answer because I've kind of developed some other skills and accommodations and other things, you know, I don't know. And, and the thing is, is really anytime you're talking about any type of neurodiversity, whether it's ADHD, autism, giftedness, like there's a lot of overlap <laughs> in those areas. And it can be really difficult to tease those things out. But I see so many of my clients who school honestly can be like 
the worst place for them because it is very rigid and 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 they're not supported and it's like once they get out of school and they get into a career that fits them and that they enjoy and that uses their strengths it's like they just blossom and i wish we could do that at a younger age for these kids yeah we get it in there early then it reduces the risk of difficulties further down further mm-hmm. down the line I'm actually doing my literature review at the moment is on autism and trauma. And one of the kind of findings, the literature at the moment for it is very small, so I don't have much to go on compared to sort of other areas. But one thing that's coming out that's quite preliminary is that autistic people find non-DSM-5 traumatic events traumatic. Um, and in one particular study looked at what they called social negative experiences and 60% of the autistic adults that were done that research said that the negative social experience that they endured was their most traumatic experience. Mm. So it was comparing negative social experiences to DSM-5 traumatic mm-hmm. events. And they had, 60% had said that the, the non-DSM-5 traumatic events were actually their most traumatic experience. You know, that's fascinating. I didn't realize there was any research about that, but I, I agree with that. I mean, that's I, I would say that, and that's interesting. You'll have to email me that article because I, I I'd be fascinated. I will. It's um, Haruvi et al. 2020, and it just, it just made me think it tied in there when you were saying about, you know, the, getting the environmental supports earlier. It just made me think of it there. Well, it's interesting because sometimes when I when I do talks, I, I will often talk about my neurodivergent clients and the term I sometimes use because I'm often relating it back to experiences at school and the misfit in environment. And I'll talk about what I kind of call educational trauma. But that's that's what you're describing there. And and I'll often have people who are who know a lot about trauma or whatever, and they'll push back on that and they'll say, well, that's not really trauma. I go, well, I mean, I'm just telling you like this is these are the the outcome is the same. <laughs> like the, tra- the traumatic response is the same. And so just because it doesn't fit your criteria of what trauma is, like that, that undermines what a person's lived experience is. Yeah. And I think that's a real issue that has to be changed for within the DSM-5. And interestingly, the ICD-11 is a bit more vague in what the classify as traumatic events so it gives Mm -hmm. clinicians a bit of an area to to play around with it puts it means that they can sort of determine whether an event was traumatic enough to be considered as you know to be looked into further for like PTSD criteria Mm -hmm. yeah fascinating I feel like DSM should maybe catch up there are a lot of areas where the DSM could catch up but (laughs) that's true (laughs) Would you mind explaining a little bit about twice exceptionality? I know you've um, already mentioned it earlier, but could you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, as I mentioned, you know, and we were talking about kind of that overlap between giftedness and other types of neurodiversity. Um, Twice exceptionality is this fascinating intersection between cognitive ability and, and disability. Um, and, And for a very long time, it was really kind of believed that if somebody was gifted, they could not also have a disability. They couldn't be dyslexic. They couldn't be dysgraphic. They couldn't be autistic or, or an ADHD. Or, um, and that's just not true. Those things can all coexist. But, but what's difficult about that is that 
it's it gets really complicated as far as teasing it out. So sometimes what you see is that a person's disability will mask the giftedness. So you see the autistic traits, you see the ADHD traits, you see that they're struggling with reading or whatever. And unless you really know, this is where IQ tests can be really helpful because an IQ test kind of avoids the achievement piece that goes into that, right? And so you can then see that ability there. Um, the flip side of it is that sometimes the giftedness masks the difficulties. And so when that happens, what you end up with is a child who um, perhaps is identified as gifted at a very young age, or they seem very smart, but then, you know, they're not living up to their potential. They're not, you know, they're, or, or they learn to mask their difficulties. And so they, you know, the autistic individual who learns to act as though they're neurotypical or, you know, an ADHD or who kind of like can, can get by and get good enough grades, but then eventually those executive function skills are kind of going to, they're not going to be able to compensate for that any longer. Twice exceptional individuals are often misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. And, you know, what I find, especially with autism, for example, is that the, the average age of diagnosis is much older. And in the DSM-5, speaking of that, one of the pieces that it talks about with like the social communication is that the, the difficulties may not manifest until the social demands outpace their capabilities. So when kids are young and, you know, they're just friends with whoever and maybe they stay in the same school so they've got the same peer group or whatever, you don't realize that they're struggling with communication or making and keeping friends or all of these different pieces. And then maybe they switch schools or they move or or all of a sudden the other kids kind of their social abilities mature and develop and, um, you know, the neurodivergent childs don't. And so then you see this discrepancy and then they start struggling. But it might be, you know, preteen years. It might be teenage. They might be in college. Like there could be a lot of different points where all of a sudden that becomes manifest. And you're like, when you look back, you reflect, and you're like, oh, my gosh they were compensating and because they were also gifted we just didn't see these difficulties so with twice exceptional learners do you think that if they were able to maybe adapt some of the assessments for, for those that have maybe been diagnosed with other um conditions first and they're not it's maybe not getting picked up on straight away do you think that assessments could be adapted for them to to tease out that giftedness or yeah you know I mean the problem always comes down to money and time the best way to do any sort of assessment like that would be to do a full differential diagnosis where you're, you're looking at all of these areas you're looking at cognitive ability you're looking at academic achievement you're looking at um, you know, emotional regulation and social skills. You're looking at all of those pieces and putting those pieces of the puzzle together to figure out what the full picture of a child is. The problem is that's not how it often works. And we have a diagnosis, you know, we have a question. Is this child autistic? Well, let's do these particular assessments for autism and we're not going to look any wider than that. Yeah, you're, you're probably going to miss something, you know. I mean, I don't want to say probably, but it's very possible. If there is something else there, you're, you're not going to pick up on it because you're not looking for it. Yeah. And because those layers can be so complicated, um, I will say one of the things that I see most often for my twice exceptional kids is that I see kids who are identified as gifted and they come in with a diagnosis of ADHD. But that's totally not right. They're actually autistic. But because when they're young, they they man, you know, it shows up as, um, you know, disorganization and um it looks like they're fidgeting or that they're hyperactive, but often that's like a sensory stim 
and it's yeah. perceived as hyperactivity, you know, and but because they're managing socially okay, and we haven't really looked at that closely enough, the ADHD stuff says, you know, you check all of the boxes. It's like, yeah, that, that fits. That's what it looks like. But it's only outside of the context of what it might be with autism and the giftedness and everything else playing into it. And so if you don't look at those aspects, you're there's a, a chance that you might just miss it. Yeah. So would you say that twice exceptional learners are underdiagnosed? across the population yes i think they're both underdiagnosed as gifted and or as neurodivergent yeah i feel this the same over in this part of the world as well i think we're yeah really kind of behind and <laughs> you know and these kind of things and we really need to, to catch up because there's all these not just children but adults out there that and i know a diagnosis isn't everything but actually being able to understand yourself mm -hmm. I think can prevent some you know difficulties down the line and even mm -hmm. for adults you know maybe adults that are getting diagnosed autistic or ADHD as they're older they can look back and say do you know what that makes that makes sense it's that light bulb mm -hmm. moment and I, I suppose similar to the experience that you're saying you know you kind of look back at when you were mm -hmm. in the classroom and go gosh of course like that that makes sense okay. or yeah and I think yeah our mental health services maybe wouldn't be quite as overwhelmed as as they are if we got in there earlier with yeah. several things but that being that being one of them no I agree I totally agree yeah well that's all the questions that I've got for you today um thank you so much I've again learned loads I learn loads every time I listen to you <laughs> but really I've, I've learned loads today uh, so thank you so so much no thank you for having me it's been a great great talk thank you